You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 231, and I'm your host, Tom Gallo. This edition of Look at My Records features an interview with Matt Allen of the Brooklyn-based band Star 80. I last chatted with Allen prior to the pandemic on the Look at My Records radio program. Back then, he was just releasing his first singles as Star 80, and in the intervening years, he's accumulated a bevy of solid material. Much of it appears on his brand new debut full-length, New View. The record is a cohesive, yet eclectic mix of stories and sonics, with Springsteen, British post-punk, and more playing an influential role. During our interview, we chatted at length about New View, including how Atlantic City inspired the second track on the album, Atlantic City, how a well-known Sopranos quote worked its way into the sixth track, Autumnal Baby, and much more. Plus, Matt picked some awesome records from my collection, including choice cuts from Tommy Keen, Purple Mountains, and Pulp. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look at My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look at My Records website where you can find reviews, playlists, premieres of new music, and much more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. What's up, Matt Allen, Star 80? How are you? I'm good, Tom. How are you? I'm good. You're releasing a new record called new view it's awesome we're gonna talk about it at length but before we do how's everything going since we last spoke for a radio podcast live stream type of thing i remember we did like a live stream on instagram during the pandemic which was fun yeah there was that that? i do remember (laughs) that i'm remembering that now and i remember it was like uh that that was like the early days of people like figuring out like zoom yeah, stuff and everything and so i remember it just glitching out and uh friends who were watching it sending me all of these like demonic screen caps of like my pixelated face like melting um <laughs> and you just sort of like in the other you know little box just kind of looking confused and panicked um <laughs> so yeah I, you know uh, everything's good. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that was so long ago, like three years ago. But um, I guess in that time, I've just been like working on this record and the host of other things and kind of saving off uh, various uh, personal catastrophes, you know, just like everybody else. Yeah. I mean, the record sounds so well put together. It seems like you probably spent a significant amount of time writing maybe rewriting these songs and uh spending a lot of time uh recording them or getting recordings together what what was that process like was it something because it sounds like a the type of finished product that a lot of work uh went into given the the quality uh yeah i mean it, i think i look back now and i'm like i think that was so stupid like the amount of time that went into it uh, I wouldn't do it that way again. Um, I just like spent too much money on it. I, I had this idea of like wanting to make, you know, like a 14 karat gold, like big kind of like pop rock and roll album that Polished sounded record, yeah. that sounded really great and like had a, a million instruments on it and backing vocals. And the ironic thing is one, it wasn't good for me on a personal level, uh, financially or uh, emotionally. And also, uh, it's actually not even what people want most of the time anymore. Um, I think, you know, I would have been better off making this on GarageBand and slapping autotune on the entire thing. Um, but you live and learn. 
That was such totally. a bitter answer. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's all good. For something that sounds really great, you should definitely be uh, proud of the finished product, in my opinion. I'm, d- I'm, I'm definitely. Excellent. Thank you. I'm definitely proud of it. Uh, I, you know, it was definitely, and also it took it took a long time, you know, because it's such an involved and like layered kind of production. But you know, it was also the pandemic. There was like a lot of things that got in the way of it getting done quicker, including my own, you know, uh, anxieties and never feeling like it was the right time to kind of stop. Um, and I don't know. I am very proud of it, though. And I like we put out two singles. Everyone listens to this. Atlantic check out City the and New View. And New View, yeah. Um, and I don't know. I'm like. In my it, just to stump for it for a second, I think uh, people should listen to this this album and these singles because I do think they're they're great. Uh, so that's that's my half-assed uh, stumping for the record. People should listen to this stuff. Since it did take a lot of time and did require a lot of effort, um, and it did seem like something that you really toiled over. How did you know like when to kind of wrap it up, finish it? When did you realize, okay, I think this record is done? I mean, I guess when I had like two more albums worth of material that I had written and started to feel like that stuff was beginning to get old. And also having like everyone around me be like, dude, like what what the hell? Like just put yeah. this out already. Like this is insane. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, however like polished the album sounds I'm not like the most polished individual or like music business marketing brain so uh I just kind of screwed the pooch in every possible way uh, in terms of rollout uh you know publicity all of that stuff so I think I always was waiting to like get it right to like have like you know everything you know I wanted to get some record label behind it. And then I wanted to, you know, pay whatever I could to do some PR campaign with somebody who wasn't a total con man. Uh, <laughs> and none of it ever quite panned out. And now I'm just here doing it myself, which I'm totally fine with. Um, but yeah, I think at a certain point, I just knew I had to, you know, I just wanted to share it and also like move on to the next thing. Totally. And I want to touch on one thing outside of the record real quick, and then we'll come back to it. But over the last few years, outside of music, you've done some really cool interviews in different publications with some, you know, legendary creatives. John Cale, uh, James Elroy was another one, John Lurie. And I'm wondering if, you know, getting, being able to speak with, those folks, you know, people you probably really look up to uh, creatively. What impact did that have on your own creative self or your creative process, if if at all? Did you take anything away from, you know, having an opportunity to speak to someone, you know, as incredible or legendary as John Cale? You know, I've never thought about it um, in those terms of like, I, th- I think it Mostly when I think about those conversations, I think it gave me an avenue outside of being creative or it gave me an avenue outside of music to do writing and also in stark contrast to music, like actually get paid (laughs) to do something kind of like (laughs) with with, with words and writing. Um, But I don't know when I guess my immediate thought in hearing that question is like, I guess in talking to somebody like John Cale or uh, Paul Schrader or like any of these guys, there's a sense always of a kind kind of flippancy about making things, a kind of internal undying confidence um, that isn't arrogance, but like it's just a kind of matter of fact, like had an idea and it was as simple as the idea was compelling enough uh, that it was worthwhile doing. And so I set about doing it. Um, and I can be that guy, but I can also be the guy who 
talks myself out of. Yeah, second guesses. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that to me is like an incredibly admirable quality. And it's the quality I continue to identify in people who make great stuff and do it for a long time. Totally. That's really cool. And really, I find that speaking to people you look up to from a creative standpoint, you can, even if it's a short conversation or even if you're talking about something off topic, you could take something away to apply to your yourself. And it seems like you did that there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I only just uh, did that in you bringing it up and thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I'd actually never well, thought I'm, about it before. I'm glad that's why we do these things. There you here. go. But to turn back to, to the record, um, you know, talking about influence a little bit, you know, I feel like Springsteen definitely seemed to be a reference point for this record. And I was just wondering what, what does his music mean to you and what about his songwriting uh, sticks with you? You know what? This is going to be a complicated answer and one that may, like, I don't know, but I... When I wrote these songs, I think I had like a, a less complicated, nuanced uh, feeling about Springsteen. I just like loved a lot of his music, and I and I still do. Um, feel like he's like kind of aging like milk for me in a lot of ways, and yeah. uh, the appeal of him kind of seems to wither away and deteriorate over the years. There's certain things that I still love, but like uh, I I don't I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it's funny because I feel like. The, the record kind of starts with more of an apparent influence mm-hmm. from him, but then kind of it, it moves away a, a little bit. You know, there are songs on the record where I feel like it, if you listen to them by themselves, you really wouldn't hear hear the influence at all. I think, I think, I, I think one, one that really stands out to me, um, No Match for Love, I feel like, you know, no trace of Springsteen on that right. record on that think, song or anything like that. Yeah. I think it's really like the first two songs, new view yeah. Atlantic city that really have that. And honestly, a hundred percent influenced by, by Springsteen. I love so much of his music, but I also think, uh, it's almost equally influenced by like those two songs by particularly new view by Van Morrison, who, yeah. um, that's a little bit like, I just think I sound a little bit more like, an East Coast rock and roll singer, i.e. Bruce Springsteen, than I do like Van Morrison, who has one of the most unique, like, kind of acrobatic voices ever. Um, so it makes sense to go to Springsteen. And also Atlantic City, it's like you can't yeah. even hear the title without thinking about Without thinking of Bruce, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of segues into to my next question, specifically about Atlantic City. And I, I kind of want to get to... The, the question after this, I want to dive into kind of the, what I saw were some kind of ways to compare and contrast the two songs, right. the two, the two different Atlantic cities. But just the first question at the, you know, right off the bat is, you know, Atlantic City is such a, is a city in New Jersey with such a complicated, interesting history, you know, the history of it being run by organized crime uh, how it had a bit of a revival kind of then fell back into not so good times and now it's kind of having a bit of a revival again now but i'm just curious what drew you to uh you know making that city in particular the focal point of or the setting of atlantic city uh, in that song uh well it's Basically, in twenty late twenty nineteen, around there, um, or it was the summer of twenty nineteen. Uh, it was like a scorching hot day. I was working. Uh, my job at the time was was a barista at Variety Coffee in uh, Bushwick, and my friend Madison was behind the counter with me. And there was a line out the door, and we were, you know, uh, uh, just profusely sweating, and. Uh, he said something to me of the effect, like, I can't wait to go down to Atlantic City this summer. I'm going to wear a pinstripe pinstripe suit and walk into the ocean. It was this offhanded, flippant kind of like, you know, dream of going to Atlantic City and swimming in the ocean, but also maybe killing yourself. 
Um, yeah. It was funny, but also kind of disturbing. And just him saying that kind of like captured my imagination. Uh, honestly, I've never been to Atlantic City. Um, it's just uh, a place, like I think many places in America that one hasn't gone to, but it still, it holds like a, you know, some kind of uh, place in your mind. Yeah. You have you have some associations with it that, for whatever reason, are compelling and, and interesting to you. Uh, and probably the reality of it um, would probably not match up to what, you know, the way you kind of idealize it. Uh, I have a friend who went to his brother's bachelor party in Atlantic City a few months ago, and he was like, man, it's a nightmare over there. Like, yeah, I, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I've been to a bachelor party there before. Right. So, well, yeah, you're a Jersey guy. So it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah. I assume that you've like spent some time there. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. So it's like Atlantic City doesn't, it's like not a place that I've personally been to, but it's just, a, you know, it's like kind of an iconic, um, albeit off brand, you know, it's not Vegas. It's not Los Angeles. It's not one of these big American cities that holds a huge place in like the collective imagination, but it's, it's, you know, it's, um, I don't want to say it's like D league that, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's coming off the bench and, you know, everyone has like an idea of what Atlantic city is. So it's just like a cool place yeah. to base any song or whatever. Yeah, and you know, I felt like your song Atlantic City like Springsteen's kind of touches on death. Um your song it seems to be about suicide. Uh but I was wondering cuz the con the contrasting your song to Bruce's, you know, it his touches on death too, but it is it is kind of like hopeful, like kind of a there's a naivete to Bruce's uh version, you know. I I, I think the line is you know, uh, every everything dies, baby. That's a fact. But maybe mm -hmm. everything that dies some someday comes back. You know, yours is more like final and forceful. I came to Atlantic City to die. So I'm wondering if you <laughs> were conscious of those kind of contrasts between between your your Atlantic City and and Bruce's. And I wonder if that was kind of you know, deliberate or anything like that. Uh, just a kind of darker, it, yours seemed to be more of a darker Atlantic City. I wasn't conscious of, uh, of that stuff, no. I mean, I've, I love that song. It's his uh, Atlantic City. Uh, and yeah, I, it's like I didn't even write the song with that in mind, his Atlantic City. Um, I only ever thought about the two in uh comparison to each other due to the title and at one point i wanted to change the title to atlantic city 2 just Hell to like yeah. give it this kind of like you know offhand ironic kind of like this is a sequel wink wink kind of thing but that also felt dishonest and kind of um a little too smirky or something uh so i ultimately was like i'm just gonna call it atlantic city but the comparisons i think kind of end there i mean yeah, but um, yeah, I love that it, song. It's interesting that you mentioned sequel too, because I I feel like your Atlantic City is kind of a modern critique on how the world has changed in the forty years since uh, Bruce wrote his Atlantic City, where I guess it made sense to be a little more hopeful mm, in the song, right. even with that one line. Whereas now, I don't know. That's kind of my take. Not much to, to be hopeful for in the world, unfortunately. Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, too, because that song, I think, like, um, I mean, it's not a cheery song in the same way that New View is, but it's yeah. it's got an anthemic, you know, very totally. melodic chorus, and it's a song that when we played it, you know, live, we would, like, get people to, like, sing along with it, and so it's got this big kind of anthemic chorus, but it is just, it is pretty grim, actually, yeah. I don't think I realized that until, like, after after a while. I was like, oh, yeah, this is kind of, like, a fucked up, depressing song. That's something else you alluded to was uh, something that I wanted to touch on, too, was kind of the 
the dichotomy between New View and Atlantic City coming first and second on the record, how the record kind of starts off is a little more uplifting. Uh, New View seems to be focused on new beginnings, and it is kind of a more uplifting uh, message, uh, whereas Atlantic City kind of segues into something like much darker, even though you mentioned sonically there are, you know, kind of more anthemic elements. Was that something else you were kind of conscious of, you know, starting the record out kind of on this uplifting note and then kind of immediately switching it to, you know, something that's a little more darker in quick succession? Uh, Definitely. I feel like uh, juxtaposition is like always... Yeah, very cool, yeah. Cool and like part of the goal of the album was you know, eight songs, like almost 30 minutes on the dot, if not like shorter, uh, and have kind of run the gamut of, you know, really optimistic Springsteen, Van Morrison indebted kind of, you know, white boy wannabe soul gospel, you know, barn burner stuff to, you know, more kind of ballady kind of things that are kind of dark. And then, you know, some kind of fun, you know, driving post-punk stuff and then something like kind of ethereal. Like I wanted there to be like some, like have it be like a real grab bag, but uh, still cohesive. And I'm also just by nature kind of an up and down person, you know, it's like, as I think, you know, certainly a lot of people are. So uh, it's probably pretty representative and accurate to my life as well. Like, I think one day I'm like new view. And then the next day I'm like Atlantic city. It's kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do really enjoy the, the sonic diversity on this record. Something you were just talking about. And I also mentioned a little earlier, no match for love really stands out to me, uh, you know, coming after these two songs that are, really influenced by this someone like Bruce or Van Morrison and then no match for love to me, you know, still cohesive part of the, you know, eight songs, but you know, something that's more like snarling, almost like British post-punk sounding, right. uh, reminded me of like echo and the bunny men or, or something like that. And so Same. I'm just curious about how that song came together and how did it wind up sounding the way it sounds? Uh, I think it sounds the way it sounds because uh, almost out of necessity because it's it's basically just a two chord song and I forget how long the song is it's somewhere between four and five minutes but it's it's just kind of like a droney um, attacking uh, driving thing and it's it's just two chords and then there's no really B part uh, it's kind of just like nails this melody over and over into you. And I think because it was so sparse and it's like the writing of it, the band, like that song, I think more than any song on the album, I consider like most of the songs in the album are songs. I mean, they're all songs that I wrote, but some of them are more, you know, songs that I can like play on my own or whatever, but no match for love was kind of like a band invention because it had to be because there was so little meat on the bones that you know Taylor who plays lead guitar on the whole record and Matt Harrison who plays drums and Ted Jamison who plays bass uh, they all kind of just like helped to kind of invent that and give the song structure to have there be these like multiple kind of guitar freak out kind of sections where it gets the most kind of jammy, you know, on the whole record. Um, and I don't know, I've got that, like, I've always been uh, obsessed with British music of the kind of post-punk and uh, generally 80s, like, era. Yeah. So I think it's probably just subconsciously came out of that. Um, I also like the idea of, making a love song that was also like kind of gritty and uh aggressive it's also like a funny juxtaposition but um it's a fun one i feel like people like we we just played that at our last show for the first time 
in a long time and like i don't know people react really well to that song always which is cool totally and i know paul blackwell uh produced engineered and mixed the song atlantic city did he do the whole record who who worked on on this record he he produced and engineered the entire record um so yeah we recorded it at studio g in greenpoint with him yeah and then I spent like we did some overdubs at his. Uh, he had a studio for a bit uh, in this space behind Transpicos, and we did a lot of like overdub stuff there, um, sax and backing vocals and different things. Um, but yeah, Paul, you know, engineered the whole thing, and I spent way too many months sitting in his apartment with him like mixing it and then sending him annoying emails and paul paul is the man and uh you know somebody who i'm like we made our first ep with him as well uh i think i'm gonna start working with him on something soon uh just like nice when you find people who you feel like really comfortable working with because it's kind of scary to go into new situations where you're just not sure if uh it's gonna feel right or you know but i feel like paul and i work really well together yeah totally and turning to another song autumnal baby features that very well-known uh sopranos quote in it uh by christopher Maltasanti. uh but on this song it sounds like it's being delivered by someone with an irish accent where was that that from and why'd you decide to uh put that in the song there uh there was that song was written and recorded and that part was just kind of this instrumental kind of smoky uh kind of sparse cinematic sax kind of part and i think i just been listening to a lot of um I always chalked it up a little bit to listening to a lot of Prefab Sprout at the time. And I feel like, you know, Patty Macklin of Prefab Sprout would do like quirky, odd little things yeah. on like a album like Jordan the Comeback where you just throw in kind of a weird spoken word interlude. And I had yeah. the idea that that should be some cinematic spoken word part. But I knew it, I didn't want it to be me. I wanted it to be like a character that's just randomly kind of introduced into this album. Uh, and I also, uh, if I remember right, it was something that like I had to like figure out really quickly and I didn't know what I wanted to say. Uh, and I always loved that monologue. And so I was like, let's just do that. Where's my arc, right? Is yeah, one? yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's my arc? Um, which he's, you know, saying to Polly when Polly comes and visits his apartment, and he's working on his screenplay and he's having this like existential <laughs> crisis. <laughs> I um, love, I remember that scene, you know, so distinctly because I think Polly's response is so memorable to me. Yeah. Because when Christopher's like, nothing good ever happened to me. And then Polly's like, He's, yeah, and nothing ever did. So what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah, he's like, nothing ever good happened to me either. You know, like I went to the, I, I went to the can. I was in the military for a bit. Now I'm half, now I'm, now I'm half a wise guy. Like who cares? Yeah, who cares? Um, <laughs> but yeah, and then I think part of it was like uh, because of the prefab thing, and again, also just wanting the album to be kind of like diverse and you know surprising. It was like, oh, I should. Uh, my dad, uh, no longer lives in New York, but did forever used to frequent this bar and one of his drinking buddies is a fellow from Manchester. And, oh, wow. uh, so I just asked him one day to like, uh, come over and record this part. I think he was very, oh, nice. I think he was very confused cause he's just like a soccer like coach and, yeah. um, an enthusiastic, uh, bar fly. I don't think I think he was confused by the entire thing, but um, <laughs> but yeah. So that's but, who it is. Read uh, reading that line exactly. Yeah, nice, cool. <laughs> that's awesome. So next song I wanted to mention was uh, "Wheel of Love," a uh, pinned beneath the wheel mm. of love. Love definitely comes up. 
multiple times on the record. And I just really like the metaphor of being pinned, pinned beneath the wheel of love. So what did you have in mind when you kind of came up with that specific metaphor? And what does it mean to you? I didn't have anything in mind when I wrote it just because it just like came out naturally. But I think what I like about it um, after the fact is... Again, like I wanted kind of all the songs and album to be kind of like archetypal, like genre exercises. Um, Cold in My House is kind of like our attempt at like a kind of a alt country kind of Lucinda Williams type song. But uh, they're all kind of archetypal genre things. And Pin Beneath the Wheel of Love uh, is kind of an attempt at doing like a our dime store uh rinky dink uh version of like a philly soul song and pin beneath the wheel of love sounds like the title of kind of a philly soul song but baked into the title and the idea and the metaphor is like again kind of like a violent image um of someone like pinned beneath the wheel of a car (laughs) like they've been run over um and you know there's lines about you know uh memories like bleeding out on the ground uh, so I like the juxtaposition of like something really kind of, uh, sickly and, uh, sweet, um, and, uh, saccharine, but also something kind of violent and upsetting. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know, that's like weirdly the, just at this point, like my favorite one on the whole album, I think just because, uh, it's the song I'm most surprised that I wrote. And it's like, when I listened to it, I didn't, I didn't think I would like ever make a song like that. That's like by the end of it is I think like incredibly poppy. Um, we've got, uh, you know, the backing vocals stuff on the end of it is like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really poppy. Um, So I kind of just like it for that reason and that it's kind of novel. Yeah, and I love the way the record ends with All I Ever Want. It's this really like slow burning track that slowly builds up. It really starts out kind of sparse. And then I think as it continues to go on, you know, collects more elements and and things like that. Right. Why do you want to end the record on, on that note with a song like that? Uh, I guess insofar as there is any, like, concept to the album um, or continuing uh, theme on it that I think is particularly present on New View and Autumnal Baby and then uh, All I Ever Want is the idea of, despite how, um, like, upsetting or bad things are or have become for the protagonist of this record, there is like, it's this corny, but I think just very true idea that art and music can be a kind of salvation from all these things. Uh, All I ever want is like the most honest, like plaintive, straightforward thing I've ever written. And that it's literally just about, you know, uh, you know, sometimes I want to die, but this makes me want to live is, you know, the refrain um, one of the refrains in the song. It's it's about, you know, I thought that was a, like kind of a, a great way to end an album, to just be like, this is how much this stuff means to me. It's not just, you know, uh, fun and games and like rock and roll. It's also like, it's literally kind of keeping me alive. Um, yeah. And I just couldn't think of a better like sentiment to end that album with, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like in New View, the first song on the album, it's like the guy's talking about how, you know, he's in a shit band, he's a shit guitarist, um, but in this kind of celebratory kind of way. And then to cap it off with that song, it just felt like it made sense and kind of tied the whole thing together on a thematic uh, level, I guess. Yeah, that's, you mentioned something interesting just there and you know it's something that i could definitely pick up on is how much how much are are these songs lyrically character driven and how much are they you know kind of driven by your own personal uh experiences uh 
they're all uh, driven by personal experiences. I guess I just say character, um, not even in like a misdirecting way, but just in that, uh, I don't know, I think about the album through the lens of like a character. The character is just some version of me, I guess. But uh, yeah. the songs are all, you know, as is everything I write, uh, it's very personal and just, you know, I mean, Autumnal Baby is like uh, just blatantly kind of, about me and about hating my job at the time um and uh masturbating and uh you know uh missing a girl or whatever atlantic city is the one song where i'm like that kind of isn't 100 percent me but like i do yeah. relate to that guy but it's all uh it's all you know it's all me for better or worse. It's all Matt Allen Star 80. All right, now we're going to play a few songs from New View. We're going to play the title track, New View Atlantic City, and then we're going to hear Pinned Beneath the Wheel of Love.
All right, we just heard three songs from Star 80's new album, New View. We heard the title track, New View. We heard Atlantic City. And we heard Pinned Beneath the Wheel of Love. Everyone, you can purchase the album on Bandcamp. That Bandcamp address is star80.bandcamp.com. It's also available on all streaming platforms. All right, Matt, pick some records. We're going to talk about them. My record collection has been growing in 12-inch and 7-inch singles in the last like year and a half because I've been DJing a lot more. So that's like what's at the top mostly now so it seems like you picked out some some good good ones 12 inch singles that i have acquired starting off with it's all right by pet shop boys tell me a little bit about why you picked that track uh the pet shop boys are just like one of my favorite groups ever um i would put them like you know potentially like top five favorite bands, artists for me ever. Um, but I weirdly didn't know that song and that and the, the song that album came from until uh, a few months ago. And then I just became totally obsessed with it. And it's got this post Live Aid, We Are The World kind of like slant to the lyrics, but it's not that, like it comes across like that at first, uh, you know, glance. It's all this kind of geopolitical stuff, but over this like thumping kind of like dance track. Um, and yeah, but like the more you listen to it, the more you realize it's actually kind of, it's like a darker version of like We Are The World or something or a Live yeah. Aid kind of, uh, you know, that 80s kind of like we are, uh, you know, taking in the entirety of like global politics and... Um, but spitting it out in this kind of optimistic, you know, but we're going to be all right, you know, because we've got the music or whatever. It's kind of a cheesy sentiment, but they're so great at delivering a sentiment like that and, like, uh, injecting it with so much, like, pathos. Um, and there's always just, like, the hint of something subversive going on with them uh, and some critique of, like, big things that is just so exciting. And it's done you know, uh, you know, in the, the vessel of like a great dance track. Um, and Neil Tennant is just like one of the greatest singers to me ever, ever. He's like Bob Dylan or something. And that he's just got this yeah. really specific on the street kind of like voice. Um, and yeah, I, I just think that song rules. Next up, Pink Cashmere by Prince. Yeah. Um, another song that I've just been, like, really into recently. I feel like it's the song that has, like, defined the last month or so of my life. Like, I've just been listening to it constantly. And, um, I went down, uh, which I've done a couple of times in the last few years, uh, just listening to Prince's entire catalog which is a really exciting and fun thing to do because it gets yeah. it gets really weird once you get past a certain point um like in the mid like early 2000s uh he makes a series of like instrumental free jazz albums um and you know the 90s he like experiments with hip-hop and he makes a lot of like bad stuff but there's always like some great shit thrown in there um and I don't know, Pink Cashmere, I'd kind of like, I'm sure I had heard it, but I just wasn't too familiar with it because I believe it's, it's a B-side to something or it was yeah. just, it's maybe a standalone single. Um, but it's kind of shocking to me. It's not a more well-known and beloved um, song. I feel like it's a kind of song if, um, you know, a lesser known kind of like R&B act in the 80s 
did that song and be like the song that like defined their career. Yes, um, yeah, totally. But for him, it was just like a toss off thing. Yeah, again, one of my favorite bands, um, another great British band, Jarvis Cocker, uh, an unlikely but undeniable like sex symbol, um, and yeah, I just love like the kind of the visual kind of uh, story that plays out in your head while listening to the song of like kids uh, in some provincial kind of city or suburb and. England and kind of their sexual awakening. Um, just an amazing sounding song. Um, yeah, one of the best pulp tunes ever. Well, it happened years ago. Purple Mountains, Darkness and Cold. I don't know if you saw on Instagram, I just posted this really cool photo of David Berman uh, from 1990. It was taken by a friend of his, of her, his uh, when she was visiting him when he lived here in Jersey City. So that's why I thought oh. it was really cool. And she posted it on the David Berman Facebook group. But then when I expressed, you know, interest in how cool it was and said, oh, this is so great. I live in Jersey City. I knew that like Stephen Malcolmus, uh, Bob Nastanovich and uh, David Berman lived here, but I've never seen any pictures. So this is really cool. Thanks. Then she wound up sending me. Uh, I'll send them to you. I'll show you these pictures of like Stephen Malcolmus from the same weekend in 1990 that wow. I, I think don't think anyone has ever seen these photos before and he looks wow. really young it's cool yeah <laughs> really 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 amazing uh pictures so yeah face you. yeah shout out to facebook yeah. for still bringing people together um yeah for like good things <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah it's not just like boomers like screaming at each other about you know man like mask mandates or something um yeah, yeah i don't know i uh i always you know i always loved silver jews but honestly it was like and I've heard of and spoken to a lot of people who had this the same experience. For me, it was really Purple Mountains in that last album where everything kind of clicked into place for me and I really like un like understood what he was doing. And I just immediately, I just like loved that album on such an intense level. And I think it's a perfect album. I think it's as good as, you know, Blood on the Tracks or Astral Weeks or like any great legendary singer-songwriter album. I really think it's that good. Um, and I remember, um, you know, the night that he died and I was supposed to go to see him in New York. I think, I forget if it was like within a week. It was The show, I think, was like a week Yeah, it was. A, they were going to kick off the tour at White Eagle Hall in Jersey City. I remember that uh, right. vividly, yeah. And then, of course, sadly... Yeah, uh, that tour was didn't happen. Yeah, and the, the, you know, darkness and cold. Uh, I think is maybe like the perfect, uh, the most perfect song on the whole album. Um, it's been said a million times, but uh, just the line, uh, "I sleep three feet above the street in a, a band aid pink Chevette." Uh, I just like don't think it like gets better than that in terms of yeah. you know fun cinematic literary like writing and rock and roll yeah. it's just too goddamn good too goddamn good cold, darkness and cold rolled in through the holes in the stories i told conditions i'm wishing were taking control darkness and cold
Next, I'm a big Todd head, so happy to see Todd Rundgren here on your list. You selected Fade Away. Yeah. Um, just love that album. It's a really unique, weird one. Uh, Todd Rundgren. Todd Rundgren has been like one of the big kind of discoveries for me this year. I mean, I always like knew, you know, the big albums that everybody talks about, but I had never gone and just listened to everything. Um, up until like, uh, you know, even I forget what it's called. Uh, there's an uh, amazing eighties album that he has. I think it might be called acapella and it's yeah. Also, acapella. Like, yeah. That album, acapella, yeah. that album's <laughs> crazy good. There's like, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but like there's moments on it that are incredible. Um, I, he's just in a, in the same way that Prince is just like fascinating kind of crazy virtuoso and you can listen to everything even the sketchy lesser stuff and it's still really fun and exciting uh and fade away um bit more of like you know a prime era run grin track but one i don't hear people talk about that often it's just got a really cool um production that like almost feels like proto magnetic fields or something um i i like the kind of damaged lo-fi um you know, quality of it, but yeah, great, great song. And watch the sun And then last but not least, Someone who I think is criminally underrated, master of pop songwriting, Tommy Kane, back to zero now. Yeah. I, I'm continually shocked that even that song, I think for a certain type of guy, it's like uh, a, a American classic, but uh, it feels like a song that should just be playing on radio like all the time. Yeah. And a song that everybody... And their mother like knows, but for whatever reason it isn't. Um, is Tommy Keane a Jersey guy? Um, no, I don't think he was, but or maybe he's you know, from Maryland he was, or something. I don't know. Yeah, he was uh, associated. You know, I kind of when I think of him, I think of uh, Marshall Crenshaw, Michael yeah. Penn, um, but neither of them are. Jersey guys, but so yeah. I don't know. What I'm I, don't I don't know, know but I guess those guys are kind of uh, well, not Michael Penn, but I know you know Tommy Keen. You probably also think of like the the band the DBs, sure, and yeah. Chris Stamey, who are uh, Hoboken associated. So yeah, and know, all, I'm all sure, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. Um, the DBs, um, you know, and obviously like big star and Dwight Twilly a lot of that stuff like in my own way that was like a you know those were all like reference points for our yeah. album, album as well um I don't think it comes across super well because I just don't have like uh a sweet uh voice like those power uh power pop boys uh I wish I did but um you know, I love all that stuff. And yeah, that's, I mean, Tommy Keen just like slots right into, to those, you know, to that sound. Beautiful. You, you killed it with this, this playlist, Matt. <laughs> awesome. Stay away. Pop in the maddening crowd. You try to listen. You're talking way too loud. What's the voice? Somebody near you. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me, everyone. The album is called New View. It's really, really good. Really, really well done. And you mentioned very early in our conversation that you already have like two other albums worth of material, I guess, written. So and maybe even partially recorded. I don't know. But <laughs> so what's what's next for you now that this record is out? Do you want to? jump right back into the studio and work on the next record or do you kind of want to sit sit on this for a little bit what what's on the agenda for you i think i after figured, this? I, I think i realized through this experience that 
uh, I mean, you definitely shouldn't sit on anything and, like, wait to move on to the next thing because sometimes things take way longer than you think. So it's like I'm planning on making a new Starity record right away um, with, like, a batch of songs that I am incredibly proud of. Uh, we recorded an album after New View, but it's one that I don't really know what to do with. I, I don't think I'm going to put it out. Uh, and if I do anything with it, it'll be like, I'll release like little singles or something. Interesting. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, uh, so yeah, we're definitely going to record something again soon. Uh, that's the plan. But yeah, I don't know. Thank you for having me. Also, uh, everyone listen to, uh, listen to the album. And follow Starity on Instagram, Starity underscore band. Um, and uh, yeah, peace, peace and love. All right, so we're going to play one more track before we wrap up today's episode. We're going to play the final song on New View. It's called All I Ever Want. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Tom. Mama 